0: Hello and welcome to episode 8 of our podcast. It's the episode where we have our new fancy soundboard for the first time, our new fancy mic. uh, We're using it for the first time. We had to do now four takes on the intro in order to get it right because of various errors. And it is also going to be the episode where we have our very special guest. All right, so our guest this week is Member of Parliament Heather McPherson, who is not only the Member of Parliament from Edmonton-Strathcona, which is my writing in Alberta, uh, but she is also the Deputy House Leader of the NDP, the Critic for International Development, Deputy Critic for Foreign Affairs, Deputy Critic for Heritage, as well as being the only Member of Parliament for the uh, NDP from Alberta, uh, Mother of Dragons, Breaker of Chains. Heather, did I miss anything? (laughs)
1: I think I think you got
0: it. <laughs> All right, fantastic. Well, thank you again for being here. We're so excited to have you. You're our first celebrity guest. <laughs> All right, so um, I mean, we had this whole whole outline that we were just going to go through stuff, and we're still hoping to to get through most of it. But also, we've just had a, a an insane week past two weeks, two weeks um, that I feel like it, it's just not not possible to ignore so um i mean what are your thoughts on on what's going on in the u.s and what started to happen in canada and just everything that's that's going on with all the the protests and everything
1: yeah it's it's been a busy uh busy couple weeks for sure um i mean frankly i can even i can even start back back when i got elected and and say that this Ever since, basically, since um, January first, it's been crazy. But, but in this last little bit in the in the um, Black Lives Matter movement and the response in the U.S. to um, the murder of George Floyd and and sort of what that's looked like in Canada has been it's been really um, it's been really important. And and I think that what I'm what I'm seeing is this. Is this feeling from not just the Black community, certainly not just the Indigenous and the people of color community, but but so many Canadians are are recognizing this, the structural violence that we have, the structural racism and colonialism that we have in Canada, um, and and maybe it doesn't look the same in all parts of Canada. Uh, you know, I think when I think about Alberta, I think that. The, the colonialism and racism that affects our indigenous populations is mm-hmm. is something that is so so ingrained so structurally built into and baked into our system and and needs to be so fundamentally weeded out it, you know it's it's crazy it, to hear the story about um, Chief Alan Adams that came out yesterday about how he uh, him and his his wife were beaten by the RCMP officers just illustrates this this place where we where we've gotten to where we we have such deeply embedded structural violence that happens against black indigenous and people of color that that needs to be rooted out. And I I mean, I, I welcome that these that the these protests are happening. I welcome that these marches are happening. Um, you know, I welcome seeing politicians participate and be uh, be at these different events, but it, it certainly it certainly can't be seen as enough. You know, I don't mm-hmm. think Don Iverson's response was enough. I don't think our federal response has been enough. It, yeah. Certainly, we haven't even really heard from our provincial government. So,
2: yeah, except the, that
1: they were mad they weren't invited.
2: <laughs> the the it's nice to have all the words, but it needs to be followed up by some action.
1: Yeah. And and there are things we know that we could do that could happen right now, you know, that, that would be easy things to do. And, and those are actions we need to take. And we need to take them at all levels of government and individually as well.
0: Yeah. Uh, I just want to throw in for some of our listeners in Ontario and outside of Canada, Don Iveson is the mayor of Edmonton. Um, Sorry. That's, <laughs> no, that's OK. It's, it's fine. I,
2: I'm i sure I think we have 4 we percent listenership in Belgium. So. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Hi, Belgium. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right.
0: Yeah, I mean, I agree. I agree. It needs to be shown by from action. And uh, I mean, I have to say, in in places like Ontario and Alberta, and on the federal level, uh, I'm not I I'm not too hopeful that that will actually happen because I think there's a lot of governments right now where they're very good at the pretty words, but less so on the action side of things.
1: Well, and and a perfect example is you know our our prime minister attended. I was at the at the rally in Ottawa um, on Friday, and the Prime Minister attended and he took a knee, we all did. Um, but you know, his minister, Bill Blair, was the architect of carding in Toronto. And so who cares if you take a knee if, if the, the person that you've put in charge, if the, the minister is in fact somebody who was an architect of, of developing these plans for structural racism within our communities.
0: Yeah. Justin, I mean, Justin Trudeau, is very good at the flashy, uh, looking good in front of the camera most of the time, but not a lot of substance I found behind him.
1: Uh, well, certainly he has room. He has room to grow on this issue. That's certain.
0: Absolutely.
2: Yeah. All right. So um, should we dive into the, the questions that we had uh, written? Um, first, what made you want to want to enter politics and specifically why the NDP?
1: so yeah this is this is probably the, the question i get asked most frequently and it's it's interesting to me because i actually didn't want to enter politics this this was not a uh this was not a goal for me this has not been a you know a lifelong ambition that i've had it actually um came about in 2014 linda duncan had asked me if i would consider running for edmonton center and um, they were looking for a candidate for edmonton center and i Wouldn't run in a riding I didn't live in, so Mm -hmm. I declined. And and then, you know, Linda did ask me a couple more times. And then when when she just decided she wasn't going to be running in Edmonton Strathcona, she asked again if I would consider running. You know, I, I talked to my husband, I talked to my kids, I talked to my parents, and and I think part of what ultimately made me decide to put my name forward was was the idea that. I'd been doing advocacy work and I'd been working with the federal government for a long time and, and found it increasingly frustrated the speed at which things did not happen, like how slow things changed. And, and you know, my husband said, well, this is an opportunity for you to speed it up. This is a chance for you to push forward. And, and this is this opportunity for you to do all those things that you're always talking about and are so enraged about. And so that was why I decided to put my name forward and in terms of why the NDP I have um I have always <laughs> supported the NDP I've been a volunteer I've been on the the um the EDAs the electoral district associations and I think it's based on values I mean I think that and I've said this before but I think I have a really strong that's that's not fair um the thread through my personality, mm-hmm. uh, and I—I I just see the injustice, I see the inequality, and the NDP values of of making sure that, um, you know that we are we are working with workers, that we are protecting people, that we're making sure everybody can thrive, really resonates with me. It really makes it makes sense, and and I think maybe because I wasn't in politics, like I didn't, I, I wasn't really a political animal the winning part wasn't really that <laughs> as important to me as, you, you know, like I really just wanted to be representing people and be fighting for the things that I know are right.
0: Yeah. Sounds a little hokey. <laughs> no, no I mean, it's good. As good a reason to get into politics as there can be, I think. And,
2: and actually I've been saying for, you can ask Dylan, I've said forever, the pace at which government does things is it wouldn't be acceptable in any other business. And, and somebody yeah. is going in there, to make a change and to try to get things done uh i I have to applaud that i'm totally on on board with that Uh, thanks james
0: i'm just i'm just curious um when when did you first sort of become uh politically aware and like uh like aware of the ndp and and like um who was leader who was the leader that drew you in or or was it a leader was it just the the core values or when did it all begin oh
1: politically aware i think for for a long time so so a lot of my focus has always been um, on sustainable development, international development, a lot of that work, that was a, a focus for me. Um, and so for a long time, I've been, you know, following what's happening with the government because Canada's role in the world, I think, is, is, is pretty fundamental. And how we, how we see ourselves as citizens of the world, as we see ourselves as global citizens, I think is really important. So I've, I've been pretty aware of, of where that's been going for, gosh, since I, like 25 years, I suppose, 25, 30 years. Um, in terms of the NDP, I mean, there's always – I'm not sure if I would say it was a leader. I mean, everybody, of course, loved Jack Layton. And, and maybe the leader that actually threw me most towards the NDP may actually have been – I mean, it may have actually been Linda Duncan because she was – she was local and you saw her and you saw her working you know i i think yeah it's an interesting question but I, I i would not say it was the leadership so much as the values that have 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 pushed me into the ndp well
0: that's i think i think that's what it should be really um uh the the values. yeah leaders come party. and go right <laughs> yeah exactly and uh so it should be the the values i think that's fantastic um so now 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 you're in there you're you're elected and and you have all these many many jobs of which we only listed some of them um now, one of the things that I doubt many people know is what a house leader is and uh and never mind what a what a deputy house leader is so what exactly um is your is your job what are your responsibilities as the deputy house leader for the n d p
1: yeah um well and and I'm gonna to be totally open here, but when I when Doug Meach phoned me to ask me if I would consider being the deputy house leader, I wasn't hundred percent sure what all of them was either. <laughs> <laughs> um so there was there's there's I, I completely understand how some people may not know what that what that position is. Uh, so I work really, really closely with Peter Julian. Peter Julian's our MP from Birmingham Westminster, and he is our House Leader. And so I'm his—I'm the deputy that works sort of underneath him, and and um, we work quite closely. He mentors me. I'm extraordinarily lucky to have such a, a strong leadership model for me. But what the House Leader does is each political party has a House Leader. And the House leaders work together to get things done. So, so they negotiate on behalf of the entire party. They um, they decide on how things are going forward, which things aren't going to go forward. You know, all sorts of of things that have to sort of the day to day business of Parliament, mm-hmm. uh, which which is really interesting. So, so prior to March, that meant that you know figuring out when private members um, or opposition days in the House of Commons would be or figuring out what, what the structure of things would look like or how many days we would sit or what the calendar was or, you know, the the the, the business, I guess, of, of Parliament. Once COVID-19 <laughs> was declared a pandemic, becoming a, or being a deputy house leader became a whole different ballgame because all of a sudden we were in totally uncharted territory and everybody had to work together and negotiate. The four official um, parties had to work together and negotiate to figure out what it would look like and what Parliament looks like. And we couldn't have all the MPs together so we had to figure out a system for how that would look. And you know, what will how many people will be in the House? How do we stay distant? How do we stay safe and follow the recommendations of our health professionals? So it for the the past twelve weeks, it's been wild to be involved in <laughs> in a house leader situation. But again, it's like I said at the very beginning, I feel like I feel like I haven't had any traditional or or normal or or regular um, parliamentary experience. We just it just hasn't been that kind of a parliament yet.
0: Yeah, just tossed right into one one disaster yeah. after another one issue after another it's crazy
1: yeah literally was, i mean it started in e- e- with with the economic collapse in alberta and it moved toward you know then we had a massive uh, plane crash with flight 752 that had many 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 edmonton strathcona people on that flight you know and then covid19 yeah. it's been wild
0: yeah well at least you're not bored not your typical first year <laughs> <laughs> I know.
1: Linda Duncan has texted me and said, well, we never had to do anything like
2: <laughs> uh, Dylan said, at least you're not bored. I can, and we, we, I'm just going to mention a couple of the committees that uh, you're on, the COVID-19 Pandemic Committee, Subcommittee on International Human Rights, Subcommittee on Agenda and Procedure um, of the Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage, the Canadian Heritage Committee, as well as Vice Chair of the Canada-Africa Parliamentary Association, Member of the Canada-Europe Parliamentary Association, Canada-Ireland Interparliamentary Group, Canada-Israel Interparliamentary Group, Canadian NATO Parliamentary Association, Canadian Branch of the Commonwealth Parliamentary Association, Canadian Section of Americans, Canada-United Kingdom Interparliamentary Association, Canadian delegation to the Organization for the Security and Cooperation in Europe, Parliamentary Assembly, and the Canadian Group of the Interparliamentary Union. So that that sounds like it's going to keep you busy. But I, the question I, I have is, what what's the difference between, say, a committee, a parliamentary association, and an interparliamentary group?
1: It's a great question, um, and and the, yeah, there's a, there's a few things. So first of all. In terms of a committee, there's different types of committees. So there are standing committees that we have within Parliament that, um, that that are always active. That are that are, you know, the Finance Committee, the Foreign Affairs Committee, Agriculture Committee, whatever the case may be. These are those are committees. They are they are part of government business. They um, can have either just uh, members of Parliament or members of Parliament and senators. Uh, their their work is paid for. It's very much focused on issues related to, um, to their topic of, of of expertise. So so, for example, the Foreign Affairs Committee would very much, um, you know, would 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 do studies on different issues that are affecting foreign affairs and Canada's role in the world. So so, those are those are the business of government, and in fact, where a lot of actual work happens in the government. So. You know, you, we all see question period in the House of Commons and the chamber, but what happens at committees is, is really actually where a lot of the work happens. So that's, they're a more formal structure, they're more formalized, there's certain um, ways that things are done within committee, the committee reports back to the House of Commons. Um, so, so that's the more formal structure. The friendship groups, the parliamentary groups are, are a little bit different. The parliamentary groups are diplomatic, sort of in nature. So they are um, paid for uh, by the parliament. And, you know, you're a lot, they're basically in place so that you can develop stronger diplomatic and parliamentary ties between other countries. Um, and there is support for those. Uh, they, do, they are given staff. They're, you know, There they're is often travel between parliaments, that kind of thing. And then the friendship groups are are sort of a more informal version of that. So they are they are not funded, um, but they are again that sort of attempt for for diplomacy and for greater understanding between countries or between groups. So, for example, I'm also on the Canada Ukraine friendship group, and that's not paid for through the government or the House of Commons. It is something that is. Um, uh, sort of a less formal for structure, I guess.
2: Does that make sense? Yeah. So, sort of developing the the soft power that they say uh, Trump is losing these days.
1: Yes, definitely. The yeah, and I've said time and time again that as a middle a middle country, a middle power country, we we really need diplomacy. We need to work with allies to to be able to have a strong position on on things like Canada, China, or or whatnot, and actually, that brings up a good point too: is that um, in terms of committees, there are standing committees that always meet, and then there are there can be legislative or special committees that are are um, put together for a particular purpose. And the China Canada committee, which is in place now, is one of those um, non-standing. We don't always have a China Canada committee, but we do right now
2: because of the Huawei situation.
1: Well, I think there's, there's a number of things. The Huawei situation, obviously the two Michaels, um, Hong Kong, what's happening in Hong Kong yeah. with the one country, two system uh, rule. You know, there's, there's an enormous an enormous amount to look at there. So if, it, if the China-Canada relationship was kept solely within the Foreign Affairs Committee, there may not be enough time within that committee to explore other issues of foreign affairs.
0: Mm-hmm. So, would you say at least this is what it sounds like to me? Would you agree that um, it feels like maybe the committees are less uh, partisan than than say the 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 chamber during question period, where it feels like um, you know it's it's important, but it's as much putting on a show as it is anything else. Whereas maybe committees people work together more, or is that not true?
2: Um yes
1: and no that's my very political answer for you um so so in the chamber absolutely there is quite a lot of showmanship some people have more showmanship than others (laughs) some people like to heckle more than others we you know we've all seen it um within committee i wouldn't say that it's nonpartisan because that you are um, allocated spots on a committee based on how many seats you have so the The structure of the committee itself is is very partisan. There are a certain number of liberals, a certain number of conservatives, block and NDP. Um, mm-hmm. That said, because I think because it's not on on display the same way, there is the ability to be more collaborative. I do find people work better together on the committees, um, and and you you will find allies in different parties that will that you can you can build with. So. So well, it, it definitely you know you are an NDPer in committee, and that that changes how much time you get to speak. That changes you know the order in which you speak. All of those rules of of process are still there, but you 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 do have a little bit of opportunity to interact with others a bit more.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, um, that kind of brings up though another another sort of just like quick question that I wanted to ask, and I, I, I just I don't know. I find it kind of fun um but uh curious could you name maybe three three other MPs from other parties that um uh you admire that you've worked with a lot that you have uh good relationships with because uh i think that's not something that i guess the populace gets to see a lot like because again we see probably the most hyper partisan moments because that's mm-hmm. what's in the news that's what's in the house but um yeah who would three other Three other MPs yeah. that, for whatever reason, you admire from other parties outside the NDP.
1: That's a great question, and I it does kind of make me laugh. So right now, during COVID nineteen, of course, we do Zoom uh, question periods, so people can participate <laughs> via a Zoom meeting the same way the rest of the world is living right now. <laughs> and it's funny because before we go live, all everybody's just chit chatting on the on the Zoom call, and oh, how are your kids? And how is this? You know. So it is a very funny thing that, that we we are all um, colleagues and we all get along and, and then of course that changes once once everything starts. But mm-hmm. it is interesting to think about. Um, I think if I, if I had to name three, I mean one of my one of my colleagues in Ed, or close to Edmonton is Mike Lake. He works a lot with me and um, he's the um, international development critic for the Conservative Party. And we uh, we work really, really well together. And I, I really appreciate his his insight. I appreciate that I can I can chat with him about things that, you know, we can work together in a, in a nonpartisan way. So he's certainly one of the one of the people I would say, um, you know, Alexis uh, Brunel Ducep from the block is another colleague of mine that that I quite admire. He is Pushing um, a lot on the same issues that I am, and and one of those is is making sure our ombudsman has um, has the teeth to do to hold Canadian corporate interests to account when they are operating overseas, and that's something that's been really important to me for a number of years. And so, being able to work with him on on that is is great, and being able to work you know cross party to move an issue that's really important that. Would make the world a better place to be able to do that yeah. together. I think is important. Um, who else? You know, we've got we've got. There's a lot of great colleagues, and choosing three is really hard. <laughs> yeah, that's um, it's almost unfair. I will say, Karina Gould is the minister for international development. She's she's got a bit of a tough slog. This government is not has not prioritized international development the the way it it should mm-hmm. and and so she's in a tough situation and i think she handles it with incredible grace and and kindness um jennica atwin is another one yeah from the green party oh
0: that's <laughs> nice yeah she's uh she's the member for fredericton isn't she
1: yeah and she's just really lovely
0: nice that's good i like uh yeah. I guess another freshman freshman MP is is good. It's nice.
1: Well, and it's it's funny because of course when you're in the Conservatives or the Liberals, you're part of these big, big, big teams. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's only 24 at NDP, and there's only three Green, <laughs> and so you know we often we often cross check notes because we're we're trying to do the same amount of work as as these giant parties with much more resources, and so yeah, we will. There's we th- keep each other company. Yeah, I
0: guess there's a sense of solidarity there.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. But but just saying those names that does certainly doesn't exclude, I'm sure I'm gonna get off the phone and think, oh what about
2: <laughs> Yeah. Yeah.
1: Because there are lots of great people. And of course I, I get to work with some pretty spectacular MPs within the NDP the party as well. So that's that's pretty great.
2: In in the 2012 provincial election in Alberta the Alberta NDP had four seats and uh, just under ten percent of the vote. In twenty fifteen, they won fifty four seats with forty percent of the vote. In twenty nineteen, they had thirty two point seven percent of the vote and twenty four seats. in the In the federal election in twenty nineteen, uh, the NDP got eleven and a half percent of the vote in Al- in Alberta. Yeah, and uh, in twenty fifteen, it was also around eleven. So. My question is how how do the federal NDP connect with the electorate that votes NDP provincially in alberta
1: yeah well and and you can see by those numbers that you know we've got a lot of work to do in alberta there's there's a lot we can we can be doing and i ha- I've thought about this a lot because one of the things that I find fascinating is how you know in the same year an albertan obviously outside of Edmonton, Strathcona, but an Albertan could vote NDP in the provincial and conservative in the federal. I find that that very interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I think there's a few things, I think. First of all, obviously in Canada, we have the three major parties in Alberta. I mean, discounting the bloc, of course, but those three major parties. So the progressive and centrist vote is split. So this is this is a big part of the problem, and and part of that, of course, is our electoral reform system, um, and and also a p- part of that. And I'm I'm going to be a little partisan here: is that the the liberals typically campaign quite uh, far left, mm-hmm. uh, and that isn't necessarily how they govern, but but they they do campaign that way. And so until you know, until we can actually get people to recognize that that the 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 words don't match the actions. Um, that's that's going to be something that's always going to be a problem for us. But, but I think the other thing too is that, we'll, particularly in Alberta, I don't think we've been able to, as as effectively as I think we can and, and probably will, um, get people to understand <laughs> that, for the most part, most Canadians actually probably are new Democrats. <laughs> Um, you know, most people, when you actually break it down and say, here's one of the things we believe in, do you believe in this? They, The resounding support for for some of those fundamental principles is really, really strong. It's interesting to me. And the reason I, I bring this up, too, is during the last election campaign, we knocked on – we literally knocked on all the doors. We went to every neighborhood. We went to every street. And, and I, I – <laughs> Don't even want to know how many doors I knocked on over the past year. And if you ever start talking to somebody who is, you know, I've only ever voted conservative, I am a conservative, um, I don't like the NDP, but then if you start having that conversation about, well, we think that, you know, an important thing is PharmaCare. We're the only country in the world that has health care and doesn't have a PharmaCare program to go with it yeah, I think that sounds great. That sounds like a good idea. You know, like there is, we think that workers should have fundamental protections and, you know, most people will say, yeah, we do as well. So I think it's getting that message out and, and it does take time. And it also is um, like, if you look at the, at the Alberta NDP, it's, it's these, these moments that happen. Like like 2015 was a, as it was a huge moment where people realized, Oh, like, I can vote NDP. I'm not required to vote conservative (laughs) because I'm an Albert. And it's just getting, it's flipping that switch, I think. And and there's no easy answer. You do it by talking to people. You do it by going door to door and and coming up with a plan or a vision for our country that resonates with Canadians and just doing the hard work.
2: Yeah.
0: You know, it's interesting to, to just throw back a little bit to something you mentioned earlier with the liberals campaigning to the left and then not governing that way. I remember um, in my, literally, Poli Sci 101, um, uh, one of the things that the professor mentioned is that a constant um, strategy in Canada is the parties that win campaigning to the left and then governing to the right. And that that is like a historical trend. And then another thing that that we talked about is, um, and we sort of noticed, or at least I sort of noticed a pattern is, the 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 liberals seeming to pick ideas from the NDP that are popular and then campaigning on them and then not really doing anything about that and that can be traced actually like as far back as I've noticed is William Lyon Mackenzie King because he was like obsessed with poll numbers and and popular support and when the CCF was ahead he started taking their ideas and that's how he managed to win more governments and I think the liberals have just run with that ever since
2: and even recently the uh, electoral reform yeah uh, two elections yeah. ago yeah and that that didn't well happen.
1: and and i think fear plays a role in it as well because the, often you know the right is held up as sort of this specter of of doom mm-hmm. um so you better vote for us because we have the best chance at at beating you know the right so th- that's often used as well that fear piece and the the solution's <laughs> really easy if we had electoral reform uh you know that would uh that would change things
2: a lot. Yeah. Everyone could just vote how they wanted. What an idea. It's crazy. Yeah. Crazy talk. <laughs> I also think, I also think that, uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, people vote conservative because that's what their parents did. And that's what their parents' parents did. So they think they have to. And, and also, you know, so much now we've, we've been taught not to, not to talk about politics or, or religion because you might start an argument, but, it then you know I think I said this to dylan if if you don't talk about politics and religion and then the uncomfortable topics and you end up with a population that knows nothing about politics or religion, yeah, which isn't good
1: well and and that that's a role i mean i also i look at some of the the cuts and some of the things that are happening within our education our post secondary and um institutions, you know, and you think the 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 best the best thing for Canada is to have a very smart electorate who can who can make good decisions and understand how things work. And in cuts to all of these education systems is is devastating for that. That's not how you create a stronger Canada.
0: Yeah, no, I, I mean I'm in the you know I'm in university right now, and I, I have to absolutely agree. And that 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 sort of brings us very nicely to the next thing we want to talk about because. Um, I remember a lot when you were campaigning and I was following the campaign and I, we went back and reviewed some videos. And one of the things that you talked about a lot was, um, student debt. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but your first question in the house of common commons was also about student debt. Um, so, um, you know, the new Democrats are, uh, are, they're not in government, but it is a minority parliament, um, By the end of your term, uh, or at least your first term, uh, what what is what is the ideal situation you think you would like to see um, happen? And, And what are some, you know, like realistic goals that you think you can really achieve on that front before the next election?
1: Well, that is an excellent question, Dylan, and that will obviously determine, be determined by when the next election
0: is. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs>
2: um,
1: so, yeah, and of course, we've been hearing everything from this fall to next spring to um, four years out. So, even even that part of the question is really fascinating <laughs> for me. But um, listen, like, there are 28 countries in this in this world that post secondary education is free. Um, many of them do not have the economic wherewithal that Canada has there is, there is no reason why we should not have affordable post-secondary education for every single student who wants to go to post-secondary um, there's, there's no reason to not be supporting that uh, so my, my, my utopia my goal would be that we should be moving in that direction we should be moving towards free post-secondary for all people who want to go to school uh, that's not likely going to happen in my first term yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, because the other the other interesting thing, I think, is that a lot of these issues that are so important are are getting overshadowed by COVID as 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 could be expected. And so mm-hmm. one of one of our worries is and I can talk about this a little bit later on is how we build back a society after COVID-19 that that. A doesn't bring in an austerity lens, but also B doesn't um, doesn't miss the lessons we learned from from the last twelve weeks. So so that's something if you if you'd like, I'd, I'm happy to talk about. But in terms of, of student debt, I think what we can do, and hopefully we can do this very very quickly. There's zero reason not to, is take interest off student loans. So so hmm. students should not be paying interest on their student loans to the government. That's absurd. It would be a, an Unbelievably simple fix. Mm-hmm. Let's, just, let's just write that and, and that could be done. Um, I also think we need to have much better systems in place to ensure that, that funding for um, less fortunate students is, is available. So, more grants, more um, easier access to loans easier access to grants and and i think also we've got to look at some of the the funding mechanisms that go directly to our post-secondary institutions you know we are we are taking we're looking at the university of alberta with a 20 percent operating cut they have a one billion dollar operating or infrastructure deficit at the moment um the faculty saint jean is one of the only francophone campuses in western canada and it is it is at the brink of collapse. So where is the federal government's role in ensuring that, that provinces are providing adequate support for post-secondary institutions? There's a whole bunch of those things, too, that we could look at. But absolutely, interest needs to come off the table. Absolutely, we need to get more grants and more student loan funding available for students.
2: Yeah, I That's the say,
1: short-term stuff.
2: On a, on a federal level, right now I know you get it from provincial. Do you just think the feds need to encourage the provinces to, to do this?
1: But student loans are also federal. Really? Yeah. There's a, there's a, the 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 there are a, the, that mechanism comes through federal. When the interest is paid in, it comes to the federal government.
2: Oh, okay. I, I I just know I applied for uh, my daughter to OSAP and for Dylan to the NWT, so I thought it was provincial. But there are
0: there are mechanisms that are provincial, but I think there is also. You know there well, she,
2: is yeah yeah she knows yeah, yeah, those yeah. Those you know better than us that there's
0: absolutely <laughs> yeah. the the federal and uh and the federal money is under the federal jurisdiction, so yeah, one hundred percent and you know as and a, those
1: are things we can move fast,
0: yeah, and i mean as as a student at the University of Alberta, I you know again covid's bulldozed everything, but right before like before that happened, my entire class was really worried about the funding cuts, how it was gonna affect us in the arts. Which is already underfunded. Um, like it was, we were really worried about it, and and mm-hmm. potentially having to pay increased tuition. Like a lot of us were like, I don't, we can barely afford tuition as it is." Um, so it's an issue that's very near and dear to my heart.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, the average Canadian before COVID nineteen, the average Canadian student was was ending their their undergraduate degree with about thirty thousand dollars worth of debt, and and what that meant, what that what that fundamentally means is that. Wealthy people can afford to to have more post secondary education, mm-hmm. and and that's not fair. And that means that our, you know, a perfect example. Of that means that our lawyers become, are, we are perpetuating a system that keeps wealthy people getting yeah. wealthier and and marginalizes others.
0: Yeah. So we we'll, I think we'll
2: uh, we'll talk about. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I just wanted to jump in. I'm not sure if you're. I'm sure. Well, you probably are. But the NWT has a great system where. Um, every year you spend in school up there uh you earn uh one semester's worth of tuition uh so that if you go to school for your full, from K to K to 12 um you have four and a half years or so paid for and then as long as you come back to the NWT and, and work up there so they're basically paying for you to get the skills and then you come back to the NWT And apply those skills there uh which which Mm -hmm. i i thought was a great program and and you know i'd love to see more provinces do something like that
1: absolutely yeah absolutely
2: yeah um so
0: i think i think we'll get to sort of yeah rebuilding the country post covid um right at the end just to just to end on a message of hope um (laughs) uh you know just we like to do the nice things like that sometimes um but uh so going from your your sort of like um main issue is student debt and, and one of your priorities um, on a on a more party level scale uh what can you say about the what are the NDP's priorities um, for the minority government and um what 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 needs to be met for the Liberals to earn your support i know um at the beginning before covid uh Jagmeet Singh put out i think there was a list of three things that he said he wanted to see uh, done in order for the the liberals to get NDP support. Um, I completely forget what they are. But uh...
1: <laughs> well, this is this is what what, what COVID nineteen has done to us all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we we've, we've, we've all like lost our lost the thread a bit. Um. So so one of the things that that Jagmeet was was speaking to the prime minister about was pharmacare, mm-hmm. and that was one of our key priorities that we wanted to get in this parliament. Um, it is absurd that we don't have universal pharmacare. Um, you know, this is a system that is not only the the best for people, it is also economically a really good, strong idea. Um, many conservatives are supportive of the idea of universal pharmacare as well. Um, and, and our worry, of course, was that... Um, that the prime minister would would say pharmacare and would not give us that key word that we really need, and that is the universal pharmacare. So we mm-hmm. don't want a drug plan that it's being run by insurance companies. We want universal pharmacare that's available for for all. Um, so that was one of the big things. And like I said earlier, we we are literally the only country in the world that has a Medicare plan that does not include a pharmacare plan. Like this is a fundamental piece that will make lives better for Canadians. It, you know it makes so much sense on so many levels, so that was one of them. Um, you know another thing that we need we need we really wanted to see was that the prime minister would stop taking kids to court, indigenous kids to court and would settle um settle their cases and and stop with the court cases so that was a, a big piece and then for me, one of my biggest ones is the is the diversifying our economy so I think Alberta is in this situation right now where you know, it's, it's we went into COVID-19 with the highest level of unemployment for, for young men, 18 to 25, in the country. And the price of oil and gas was sub-zero. And our economy was was tanking. You know, we were on the brink of collapse even before COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And so one of my main priorities is... Is actually having a meaningful conversation about what a diversified economy for our country looks like, what our energy sector looks like in a diversified, um, you know, future-looking way, and and those conversations are 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 have become so polarized that you, we can't even talk about them. You're, it's it's very much turned into this: are you for us or are you against us? And and I'll say it that way on on sort of both sides of the equation a little bit. So so that's a big piece of what I want to see in this next. This is what I want to see is is stop with the rhetoric, stop stop uh, you know name calling back and forth across the house. Let's come up with a plan. Let's figure out how we can how we can go forward and let's, you know, start protecting Alberta, start protecting Alberta workers and and start protecting our climate.
0: Yeah. I mean, I feel like, you know, I've only been in Alberta since I started school there four years ago now, I think ish. Um, But what it really sounds like to me um, is that so many Albertans have been told for four or five decades is that um, if, if the, if we're not, you know, exclusively supporting the, the, the energy sector then we don't have an economy and if we're not doing things exactly this way then we don't have an economy and governments were doing the same thing forever and ever and the alberta economy was like a a roller coaster and then thank god uh rachel notley got elected and she started diversifying and stabilizing but now jason kenney's in and is just like bulldozing everything um Mm -hmm. and i think it's just i feel like it's become so ingrained in some people's mind and uh in some areas, maybe even the culture of Alberta, that um, talk of diversifying or doing anything different is is dangerous uh, to to the economy, and it means you're going to lose your job and never work again.
1: Definitely, and I think that politicians have played a really um, a really key and very unfortunate role in that in that discussion. You know that they're. That that there there has been so little space or so little time given to to a f- real frank discussion about the future of of our <laughs> province of our economy, you know. Even if and 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 don't get me wrong, I am I am not expecting that there's you know I'm I'm not against any industry or another. But even even if oil and gas continue to produce the same number of barrels and and whatnot there aren't jobs there the, the the industry itself is becoming efficient and and jobs are being you know automated and mm-hmm. it there's not a future there the same way that there used to be and there is a there is an exciting future in Alberta there are lots of things we could be doing you know we could be leaders we are innovators we are we are smart, you know. We've had we have this history of, of um, really thinking creatively and and doing problem solving and whatnot. So we absolutely could. And you're right, Rachel Notley was, you know, she was. We were already thinking about upgrading and and um, you know diversifying and what alternative energies looked like and, and orphan wells and, and how we would be cleaning up our orphan wells. We were we were looking at some of the um, you know the the great things coming out of ai and different industries it, <laughs> i think it's a conversation that needs to happen and frankly it's important to remember that alberta is not just oil and gas we are also you know the service industries we are also technological industries agriculture forestry there's a number of things that are albert and we just need to change the channel we need to change the narrative on that
0: yeah um that 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 just reminded me, and uh, I'm going to – I hope you don't mind my asking because this wasn't uh, um, something I, I mentioned earlier, but just remind me. I was wondering if you could speak briefly um, about your thoughts on Bill 1, which is something that my friends have been talking about a lot and been asking me about a lot um, that's currently uh, about to pass in the Alberta legislature. And for those of you – and for, for our listeners who don't know if you could explain essentially what it what it is and what it does –
1: well, again, I mean, this is a, a provincial, a provincial issue, and and of course, there's a majority government in place right now. So, mm-hmm. so Bill One is, I mean, not really an area that I would say that I'm the most, <laughs> the most um, up to up to date on. But okay. basically, what it is is it's saying that, and and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, Dylan, but <laughs> it's basically saying that that. Um, It's a pushback against protesting against with very, very punitive fines against um, groups or individuals that um, interfere with uh, critical infrastructure. So Mm -hmm. and and basically what what that means is that it was a political move by Jason Kenney and the UCP to sort of pushback at the time um on the what's protests and the blockades that had crippled some of our rail lines and whatnot it, it's a silencing bill it's it's not democratic it is it is the wrong direction to take it is um it is another perfect example of jason kenney um preferring corporations and big business to the voices of Albertans. Um, And and, and frankly, because of where it came from, it's my opinion that it's also a very, very racist uh, bill. I think that it is something that is put in place to silence uh, marginalized populations because who who protests oil and gas um, development? Who protests major infrastructure development um you, you know the, this this is clearly intended to um to further shut down the ability of albertans to have a good conversation about the future of our infrastructure in my opinion
0: mm-hmm. that that's my understanding of it as well and uh and thank you for answering the question i know you're probably swamped on the federal level already and there's everything happening in the provinces it's it's a lot in Edmonton, well,
1: It is interesting. I mean, it's a funny role that that I have right now, and I sh- I could I, I I would just mention too that like it's interesting to be an Albertan, to be an Edmontonian, to be a mother, to you know, to have all of these different roles. So you know, of course, this is vitally important to me. It may not be vitally, you know, it it may not be my job to to know the, these things, but it is. It is as important to me as it should be for all Albertans. Yeah. So even though I'm the federal MP, I'm also, you know, deeply concerned about about cuts to our um, education system because I have two children that are in that
0: education system. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so, um, the, Light, lighten it up a bit. Yeah, lighten it, lighten it up a bit from there, and then we'll <laughs> we'll go into sort of rebuilding the economy, a more longer question. But before that, um, we thought it might be fun to do. Uh, uh, what we have written down here is quick hits, which is just sort of like this or that questions. Maybe we'll talk about them. Maybe we'll just say you know move on right away. But just uh, just to hear your your uh, uh, choices between two different options or uh, light light thing, something light, something fun. Uh,
2: so let's do it.
0: Cats or dogs?
1: See, I can't I can't answer this one. I have to do both. I have one
0: for each. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Already already starting with a with a hard one um next uh social democracy or democratic socialism
1: oh when i when i saw this one i was like it really does depend on the day but considering the week we've had uh, democratic socialism
2: all right that's why i'm the limit. summer or winter
1: these are hard these are not light these are hard (laughs) summer
0: uh aaron o'toole or peter mckay
1: gross neither
0: (laughs) apple or android Apple. Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren?
1: Elizabeth Warren. We need more women in politics.
2: Yes. Agreed. Uh, coffee or tea?
1: Coffee until noon, tea until...
0: <laughs> also a good answer. Pierre Trudeau or Justin Trudeau?
2: Pierre. Beer or wine?
1: See, again, this is another <laughs> one of the both. It's terrible to say, but both. Yeah. <laughs> and then
0: last one... Ed Broadbent or Jack Layton
1: I have to say Jack Layton yeah I, I mean I, I actually got to um, chat with Ed Broadbent earlier this year he's phenomenal like what a an inspirational leader um, and I, I but Jack Layton I mean he lit our house on fire
2: <laughs> yeah yeah, that was a that was a
0: an amazing election that year absolutely um, you know actually I think was it was it under Ed Broadbent, because we, we have a, a relative who ran for the federal NDP uh, in Parry Sound, Muskoka, I think. Was that under Broadbent?
2: Pro- I, I think so. I'm yeah. not 100%, but I think so. Uh, he got crushed. Nice. Oh, yeah, no, nice.
0: he didn't win, unfortunately, but he ran. He Perry, put his name forward. Parry Sound
2: NDP is, is pretty blue. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but, you know, I think, I really or, sorry, think... Parry Sound, Muskoka this, is pretty blue. Yeah. yeah. I have to say, though, in those in those districts where... You know, it's almost guaranteed that your party's not going to win. Putting your name forward and running anyway is a very brave thing to do, I think.
1: Extraordinarily Uh, brave.
0: Yeah. So thank God for for people who are willing to do that because it's not easy, I'm sure. I'm sure it's not easy to run in a riding where you have a good chance of winning. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, 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 to win you certainly you don't.
1: never know yeah. you have a good chance of winning until the election night is over yeah i'll tell you i did not uh i did not feel a hundred percent confident on october on october 20th
0: yeah well my i remember we I had a sort of like election night party at my house and i had a few friends over and we were always like it was it was covering the whole country but every time edmonton strathcona we'd come up like we're desperately looking at the the, the screen, and there's a point of time where um, you're checking the numbers desperately, and there's a point of time where Sam Willie, who ran for the conservatives, he was slightly ahead, and when I announced that, everyone in the House just screamed because um, they were so nervous, uh, but then you know you you beat him by ten points, you crushed him a little bit
1: <laughs> we, we made it in the end it's true,
0: yeah, absolutely so um I know we have to let you go soon we 're at fifty three basically fifty four minutes um, but ending on on maybe something a little bit more uplifting. After COVID ends, because it will, things will start to um, um, you know, the 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 pandemic will will lighten up and and things will start to reopen. So when that starts to happen, when we get this under control, what do we do? How do we start rebuilding? Because there's going to be lots of jobs lost, lots of people who are just like out of money and the federal government's going to be in one big hole when it comes to the the deficit
1: that maybe isn't as late as you intended to end
0: <laughs> <laughs> i'm hoping you provide the um, light part
1: <laughs> well so yeah we actually have put a task force together actually Joy Mead asked myself and charlie angus and daniel blakey three mps to to lead the task force for the ndp that could look at what this what our What are the lessons that we need to learn what do we want to make sure happens when we come out of out of this um this schmozzle i guess and you know we've already seen we've already seen that that the conservatives they are hardcore going towards austerity stephen harper wrote in the in the um wall street journal about the the need for austerity coming out of this and whatnot Which is ridiculous I mean realistically we have gone down The austerity path before We have done Reaganomics We have done structural adjustment programs You know we've done Thatcherism We know what this looks like It is not the answer Uh, We've even had the experience of being able to see Different countries um, who have used Austerity versus uh, stimulus You know looking at things like Greece and Portugal and, And which situation works better Looking at some of our Um some of these countries that like New Zealand who who've done so well coming coming um, out of the pandemic and also in terms of looking at what is what is our economy for what is our society for it's it's actually not for the corporations it's not for the multinationals it's it's for the people and so what's the best way to to go forward and i think well covid has uncovered some really uncomfortable truths it's also shown us that we've got we've got the ability to do fundamental massive change in this world it's possible um it happened incredibly fast we can do it so so well yes of course we can we can see that the society we have right now has people that two weeks into this pandemic could not buy groceries that you know a week into this pandemic couldn't pay their rent we also got our very first or may get our very first trillionaire so <laughs> So if that's not an indication of a system that is deeply broken and needs to be changed, I don't know what is. Um, You know, we know that women were disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. We know that if we're not careful, the recovery will leave women behind and we will lose the ground that we gained over the last several years. Um, We know that the developing world will feel the impacts of COVID-19 and will be less able to to manage those impacts. So we also have to make sure that our supports for um, developing countries is in place. Um, but there, but the, but we we've, we've seen how fast we can mobilize. We've seen what it looks like um, when there is global will, and that gives me so much hope because it means that we can respond to the climate crisis. You know, we we can respond to. Um, inequality we can build an economy that doesn't leave people behind that takes care of everyone like we have the we have the answers we have the options and and it really it's one of the most exciting times to be a politician because what we decide now what we decide in the next six or twelve months will fundamentally change our world for the for the next several decades to come and Now's the time to like now's the time to grasp the possible and to think about what we could be building. And I'm I, I mean I think it's fascinating, super exciting. And I'm 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 open to anything. Like if anyone has any ideas and wants to <laughs> wants to talk about it, I love the idea of what we could build here. So there, that is my hopeful. My, my my, hopeful cheer rallying call oh. let's get to work and and fix some of these these problems
0: yeah that's awesome and you know I, I really love what i've been hearing a lot from from the new democrats and and from progressives around the world which is let's not go back to normal after this let's let's move let's move forward and i think that's that's a, a great message absolutely
2: mm-hmm. yeah well that hour uh, really flew by. Um, I want to say thank you for for joining us. Uh, it was a great conversation, and uh, yeah, I, I, you know, hopefully we can do it again sometime.
1: Well, really interesting. Yeah, it'd be great to do it again, and thanks for having me.
2: Thank you. Well, that was great having Heather on. Yeah, absolutely, hundred uh, percent. Yeah, that was exciting. It really was, really was, and somebody who actually, uh, you know, is in Parliament and uh, and and hopefully she sounds like. Uh, She's excited to to actually make some changes and and take some action, which is important. Yeah, I mean, we absolutely need. That's those are. It's exactly the type of people we need running for office. Yeah, out of it, out of whatever party. That's what that's what you want. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I, and I do think the one thing I will say here versus the states, I I don't know. I think I think everybody here in Parliament, well. Most people in parliament are doing what they truly believe is best for the country, whereas I think down south, he he's not. Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. I also think that
0: um, the vast, vast majority of parliamentarians uh, run for office because they do want to make changes because there's things that they, they see and they believe in. Um, that they believe are best for the country, like you said. And, and I think they're they're working towards that. In the States, I think there's a problem where maybe maybe you could say that 90% of people start running like that, but you have so many like senators who have been serving for like 40 years who I think just you just get complacent
2: at some point. You just absolutely. stop caring that I was, much. I was mostly referring to Trump, though, because after— I mean, he's only been in government three yeah, years. Yes. and he, I, There's no, no sign that he's in it for anyone other than himself and yes. his friends.
0: No, 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 absolutely. You're 100% right. And
2: right. uh, we did have that because we had Heather on, we devoted the whole segment to this. But there are a few things that uh, I just so much happened this week that I just want to mention. And, and hopefully we can delve more next week. Yeah. But uh, we had we had Trump threatening to use military on U.S. soil, which is, you know, to, to quell the protests, which is I mean, it's fascism. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's
0: absolutely authoritarianism uh blatantly and 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 is
2: extraordinarily close to fascism yeah. uh called called for arrests of the protesters with jail terms
0: yeah i mean this is it, it's
2: absurd and uh and i'm sure
0: i mean i'm not i'm not i consti- i'm not a us constitutional expert but i'm sure it's unconstitutional uh to do something like that but they do have a big loophole where the the President is commander-in-chief of the military, and uh, Congress doesn't need to approve anything, and he kind of can just order them to do whatever he wants. That's how you got the war in Iraq.
2: Yeah, well, um, we'll see how that plays out over the next week. Also, there was uh, a, a lot of cases, and I, I wanted to go over them one by one, but we don't have time, but a lot of cases, maybe we can talk about it next week, maybe we'll see more of it, of, of people stepping in and helping during the protests helping police that were in trouble helping other people that were in trouble helping stores that were being looted or whatever and uh you know i think that's that's a good thing these are just these aren't cops these are just regular people that are protesting that want to protest peacefully and are trying to get it done and they want to do the right thing that's the way
0: that's the vast majority of the protesters uh outside of a small group of agitators which um you know it's not good. You need to you need to get rid of the agitators. It's it's kind of the flip side of saying uh, you need to get rid of the bad cops and you need to get rid of the agitators. But uh, the the vast majority of of the of the protesters want to protest peacefully, and they're making a very good and it's for a very good cause. And it's all it's good people.
2: Yeah, and it, it is also more. It's more than getting rid of the bad cops. It's it's changes to the system. Absolutely. Yeah. When yeah. you have when you have the. New York City, which spends more on policing than it does on the departments of health, homeless services, housing prevention and development. Preservation. And and- housing preservation, not housing pres- prevention. <laughs> housing preservation <laughs> and development and youth and community development combined. Uh, you know, you're, you're that's an issue. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I mean, the U.S. in the, uh, uh, the police in the U.S. are decked out like they're uh,
2: the military. The also uh, a also problem um, when when the uh, protest in Buffalo, there was an elderly gentleman who was shoved down by two policemen um, and and was in distress. I mean, I think he's still in the hospital in critical condition. Yeah, absolutely. Last I heard. Yeah. But, uh, you know, these two officers were suspended pending an investigation. I think they've, they've been charged with assault now yeah but initially they were they were suspended without pay pending an investigation and because mm-hmm. of that action which is almost as little as you can do in that situation yeah the other 57 members of the emergency response team quit the emergency response team and i think that's maybe one of the biggest
0: problems in policing that is maybe not talked about as much or at least isn't at the forefront as much excuse me is there's a culture of defending your own no matter what and you can't, like I understand that you, you want the fraternity brotherhood, you want to know in dangerous situations when you're a cop that you're, the people you're with have your back but also, people need to be held accountable, that needs to be the standard you need to know that if you cross the line, if you do something wrong as a cop, that you're not going to be allowed to get away with it and you're not going to be defended just because you're
2: a cop and that's when you lose the right to that support and you don't have, you can't have Their society needs to know that the police has their back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The entire
0: the system is rigged in their favor. It is made so that when they cross the line, there are no consequences, and that is how we have gotten so long to this point. And uh, you know, throw just funding for a second. Is it the
2: NYPD that have a tank? I don't think that was the MBT. I don't they probably do, but the specific tank that was on that video we were watching, I don't think was m y t d but the fact that any police force have has a tank it's a problem
0: if you if you if it, if a situation gets to a point where you need the tank, just call in the military, yeah, don't like like call in the national guard you, you yeah. didn't use the military on oh yeah, on soil. different whatever uh but well, they don't yet
2: um but uh yeah, call in the national guard the police force. Like what happens here mean. in Canada we do call in the military when things uh, escalate beyond what the police, police can handle. Yeah, we shouldn't the and and I guess the, Or it's a really bad snowstorm.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um no, I guess I mean I guess the point I'm trying to make and maybe it doesn't sound right but I think it's true is that the police don't need to be equipped to handle every situation. I think there's a certain level of certain level where it's the police and then you bump it up to the national guard and then you bump it up to whatever's above that. But the, uh, the police don't need a tank. They don't, they don't need military gear of of any kind. They barely need helicopters. There was also a, a
2: horrible, uh, situation in Asheville, North Carolina, where police destroyed a medic area, puncturing bottles of water because they said they were projectiles. And just, like, re- destroying an area that was set up to help the protesters that had medical distress. Yeah. Meanwhile, in full riot gear, they're worried about getting hit with water bottles.
0: Meanwhile, they're shooting rubber bullets yeah. at peaceful protesters. Which they
2: I, I, they don't actually... I read somewhere, and I don't know if it's true or not, but I read it on in an article that said they don't call them non-lethal. They call them less lethal because they can do a lot of damage. Yeah.
0: I... I there there are, there are many examples of police. Um, you know, not even just like now. I just see them. They're not even using just excessive force. They are purposefully victimizing themselves to try to, I guess, sway public opinion to their side. Like, like it's it's just so pathetic.
2: Yeah, but the other thing that you have to mention, if you're mentioning the bad things, is the good the good parts. And there was a lot of police that joined the. The protesters. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, really, uh, did a good job of, of protecting peacefully and letting people protest across the country. There was a lot of good jobs done. Uh, they don't get mentioned. Uh, it's the bad ones that do. Yeah. Which is, uh, you you have to stop the bad ones, but let's, let's make sure we start thanking the police that, that do a good job. Yeah. Well, you know what? It's interesting because I saw when we had the,
0: the marches in, um, Toronto, uh, just this past week, um, Mark Saunders, who's the chief of police for Toronto, went out to meet first protesters and the first thing he did was to take a knee. Him and his entire command staff, they went out, they took a knee, they talked to protesters and he talked about, uh, the need that the most important thing is to, um, connect and listen and, and, and learn to do better. And I think it's very interesting in this moment where, um, uh, uh, when well, this is happening, because Mark Saunders is a black man and he's chief of police, and um, I think, uh, I I, I think that gives him a perspective on this that not a lot of people have, yeah. Uh,
2: and I, I, I do, uh, I do, I, I hope to go into these sort of uh, kindness by police one by one, but. You know, we just don't have time this week. We can maybe look at it next week. And then on Friday, uh, Trump sort of uh, said they won. Hopefully, hopefully George is looking down right now and saying, this is a great thing that is happening for our country. This is a great day for our country. This is a great day for him. It's a great day for everybody. This is a great day for everybody. This is a great, great day in terms of equality. And uh, he was talking about the job numbers, right? Mostly. But he also was talking about the uh he was just in a good mood cuz job numbers went up but uh, it's the day after the two, day or two days after he sent the police in to clear the peaceful protest so we could get the photo oh, up i don't know is that wednesday or thursday i don't remember i just remember it's ridiculous but it's 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 far from a great great day in terms of yeah, equality
0: yeah absolutely you know what i learned i learned that uh tear
2: gas is uh banned uh during wars under the geneva convention yeah well they they they, they Apparently they didn't use tear gas there. They used pepper spray and smoke S- flashbangs, but they said it essentially amounts to the same thing. So, But they're trying to get out of actually calling it that. <laughs> now, one other thing I, I read today that uh, just, just sort of threw me for a loop. There is a Looney Tunes reboot coming, and they said Elber Fudd will not carry a gun. Instead, he will carry a scythe. Yeah, I read that too. How is that any better? I oh. Just give a. It's it's. I don't think anybody's anti-hunting. Well, now there are people who are anti-hunting. An, okay. Well, okay, but most people aren't anti-hunting. Yeah, he doesn't. Elmer Fudd doesn't have an AK-47 or an yeah. assault white rifle. He's just hunting rabbits.
0: Yeah, hunting rabbits. <laughs> I also think a scythe is it it's looks, worse. It's the it's the Grim Reaper. The Grim, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it it looks it's much type. more menacing. And also it's just not practical. And also it's Looney Tunes. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean I have to say um the in the article I read it showed how uh uh so like the older Looney Tunes were much more violent than yeah, what the, it became. The and, good Looney Tunes. <laughs> I have to say no, I've seen some of the older Looney Tunes um and I was shocked by like the amount of of blatant but like there's so many where like donald or uh uh oh no sorry daffy or or bugs like
2: kill themselves in the end the the uh, the other thing that just going back a minute but the other thing is they're still going to use tnt yes they are still going to use dynamite what what <laughs> where's the line being drawn that's worse
0: i don't know they might i mean maybe eventually they'll just get rid of that I, I mean... Then don't do Looney Tunes. I, yeah, I was about to say. There's an argument to just not do Looney Tunes and make something new.
2: Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> uh, that we should probably wrap it up so we don't bore people too much. Ah, hopefully, yeah. Thank you uh, for listening, and we'll uh, talk uh, to you uh, next week with uh, episode nine. Yeah, and thanks again
0: for Heather. Uh, thanks to Heather. And I think she's the first person we've, like, interviewed. Like, we've had guests, but I think like we, like, interviewed her. Yeah. So... Now we've set a standard that you know, we'll probably not be able to meet again. <laughs> hey, thanks a lot.